Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the story of Joseph. And, and Lord, it's exciting to be able to go through this for the next couple of weeks. And, and Lord, just as we look at your word, Father God, that um, you would take my words and that they would be honouring to you, Father. And that, Lord, each one of us would hear um, what we need to hear this morning. Lord, even if it's not what's said, um, that your spirit would work mightily, Lord, in our own hearts. And even if, Lord, our minds go off on a tangent, that, Lord, you would communicate with us, Lord, everything that we need this morning. That there would be challenge and encouragement, but Lord, everything would honour you. Father, would you send your Holy Spirit, I pray, and Lord, would he just work mightily in these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, have you ever had one of these uh, moments? It's referred to as a shaking my head moment. You ever had a shake in your head moment where you're somewhere and someone says something and they majorly put their foot in it and you sort of do this? Ever experienced that? Someone, you're in a crowd and someone says something and you think, oh man, why did you say that? And then you kind of batten down the hatches knowing that something's going to go terribly wrong in the next couple of minutes. Or maybe you're the one that's caused other people to do this. It happened to me once. Well, probably more than once um, I remember being about 16, 17 and returning to my old youth club I probably told you this story before and I went back to visit them all Lifestyle, uh, Andy and Jane know it well in Essex Road in Chapel Heath and I thought I'd go back and see them all I've never ever returned anywhere once I've left after this moment ruined everything for me and uh, there was a woman called Claire and uh, she'd just got married to a guy called Ian I think and, uh, and they'd been married about a year so, you know you have to entertain the possibility that things may have changed and so as she stood in the kitchen with about five other people and to be fair to me she looked pregnant she looked like she was with child and so I thought well I'm becoming a man it's about time you know I've noticed these things and asked how she was so I said good news congratulations and she said what and I thought oh okay you're pregnant everybody went like that and Claire looked at me, devastated, <laughs> and said, no, I'm not. And I've never felt so disappointed in myself in my entire life. What made it worse is they all went on about it for the next three hours, and I've never, ever seen any of them since. <laughs> Today we're looking at the story of Joseph, the life of Joseph in the Old Testament, which uh, we had the cartoon recap, which I hope you enjoyed. I did that mainly for the adults, not the kids, because I know if you're anything like me, visual stuff is far better than just being told it. Um, and we'd have been here all day if I'd have tried to tell his whole life story um, in just 30 seconds. And uh, we're looking at the story of Joseph, and, uh, and we're going to look at his life. And over the next three weeks, we're going to look at three different areas of the life of Joseph. Joseph as the favourite son, Joseph as the favourite slave, and then finally, Joseph as the favourite official. But the story starts in verse chapter 37. If you've got it open, that'd be good. I'm just going to dip in and out. In the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel, the land, of course, promised to the Jews by God in the Old Testament. And, of course, before Israel were a nation, Israel were a family. And the family, uh, head of the family was Jacob, who was known as Israel, and his 12 sons. And that family became a nation. And the reason they matter, the reason they're in the Old Testament, is because that family, of nation, that family became a nation of tribes and that nation brought forth Jesus Christ the saviour of the world and the reason I mentioned shaking your head is that because at the beginning of this story of this pivotal family is a shaking your head moment it's two very serious blunders made by Jacob and Joseph that threatened to derail absolutely 
everything. And actually, there's quite a lot to be encouraged by in this story because this is probably the most pivotal family in all of history because, like I say, they became a nation that brought forth the saviour of the world who defeated death and sin and darkness. And it's really encouraging to know this family that are so pivotal to salvation were so flawed yet still so used by God. Me and Andrew have a sign in our bedroom um, of a mum dressed in 1920s clothes for some reason, they always seem to be in these things, uh, going down to a daughter like this and shushing her. And the tagline is, as far as anyone else knows, we're a normal family. And Jacob and his 12 sons were anything but normal. And if anything, in fact, the message of these next 14 chapters is very simple. That despite their flaws, despite their sin, despite their bad choices, God remains sovereign. God remains in charge. And God's will is done right to the very end. And in fact, um, as we shake our heads at this family that's dysfunctional in places, that message rings out across these 14 chapters that God is still in charge. And maybe this morning, the sermon you need to hear is going to come in the next 10 seconds. And maybe this is all you need to hear this morning is that despite your decisions, your bad decisions, despite your mistakes, despite your flaws, God is still king of your life. God can still be trusted and you can trust his sovereignty. Because the last time I checked, God is still on the throne. God is still the king of kings. And the challenge for God's people is to trust in his kingship and his sovereignty when all else seems like it's failed or fallen apart that is the message of these 14 chapters of the life of Joseph it goes up it goes down it goes left and right it's more twists and turns than a curly whirly it's like an episode of EastEnders in places yet God does what God wants with this family maybe you need to take that home this morning in terms of where we are in the Bible we're in chapter 37 as I've said um we're at the time in, in the sort of history of the Bible, the Bible story, where we've had Noah, we've had the flood, we've had Adam and Eve, and God has taken a man called Abraham and just a few chapters before, chapter 12, and he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, and the whole world is going to be blessed because of your family. He then has a son called Isaac. You remember how God um, asked him to sacrifice Isaac, but just as he brings the knife up, God stops him and offers him a ram, Um, And then from Isaac comes Jacob, Joseph's dad. He has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And it would be good to talk about them, but we really haven't got time to go off on that tangent. But Jacob then has 12 sons um, with a few different wives, but we'll come on to that in a minute. Um, But we're in that part of the story. And what's interesting, the reason this matters is because whenever God referred to himself in the Old Testament at this point, he referred to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God of this family, he is this family's God. And he's going to be this world's God because this family is going to bless the whole world. So we know the story of Joseph is really important because the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is connected to him in his family. Um, It's quite a long chapter, um, chapter 37, so I'm not going to read it all. I'm not even going to go through it verse by verse. I'm just going to hope that you remember the story. Um, He upsets his brothers, gets thrown down a well and sold into slavery. And that's the really quick um, update of um, what's about to come. Um, It's quite a long chapter, but what's really important is that Jacob has uh, 12 sons. 12 sons uh, that are going to become 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes of a nation of Israel. And Jesus Christ himself is related to 
to one of those 12 tribes. And I'm just going to go off on a tangent for two seconds because if you were to flick over to chapter 49, um, at the end of Jacob's life, just before he dies, he blesses each of his 12 sons. And Jesus is from the line of Judah. His son Judah is a descendant um, or an ancestor of Jesus. And Jesus is a descendant of Judah. And in verse 8 to 12 of chapter 49 of Genesis, Jacob blesses this particular son and he says these words, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his white, his teeth whiter than milk. Interesting that from the line of Judah will come David, the great king of the Old Testament. But he's not what this passage is talking about. It talks about someone who will rule forever. That person is Jesus Christ in the line of Judah, a relation of David, who is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And often you hear us describe Jesus as the lamb who was slain, but you'd often hear us describe him as the lion. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis' works, he's the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Aslan is Jesus because of this blessing of Jacob all those thousands of years before. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the one that rules for absolutely ever. Anyway, um, I digress, but it's a good thing to digress too. I hope you agree. Um, so Jacob, um, we read, had a favourite son. Going back to chapter 37 of Genesis, he had 12 sons, uh, not quite 12 at this point, but one of them he loved above all the others. In verse 2 we read that he, Jacob, uh, Joseph was his favourite. Now, jo- now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And then it talks about his coat. So he loved Joseph more than all the other brothers because he was born to him when he was an old man. Actually, it's not strictly uh, the whole story. If you were to go back to Genesis 28, which we won't do, and you know the life story of Joseph. uh, Sorry, the problem is they're both called Jay, aren't they? If you go to the life story of Jacob, um, actually what happened to him when it was time for him to find a wife, uh, as it puts it, he gets sent off to a man named Laban and he goes to Laban to work for him and as he gets there he falls in love with a woman called Rachel one of Laban's two daughters he had two daughters Leah and Rachel and uh, Leah we're told had bad eyesight but Rachel we're told was a bit of a looker and so when um, Jacob sees her all he can think is wow and he falls instantly in love with her and, uh, and it's interesting they say Leah has bad eyesight because when it comes to the wedding night between Rachel and um, Jacob, um, Laban switches daughters, as you do, and uh, sends in his eldest daughter, Leah. And in the morning, uh, Jacob realizes that he's spent the evening with the wrong sister. <laughs> and uh, so he marries her, and then he works for Laban for another seven years to marry Rachel. So by the time, so what you realize happens is that he's got all these women and extra people around but the one he truly loves is Rachel she can't have children until Joseph comes along so the reason Joseph is a favourite son is because he's had to wait a long time for his true love to give birth to his son 
Um, there's so, many, so much of a can of worms in what I've just said that I'd love to spend a lot of time talking about. For the record, when the Bible, when you see these Old Testament characters with more than one wife or doing things that we think, oh my word, what's going on there? The Bible isn't condoning it, it's stating it. Um, and actually the message in the Old Testament is very clear that marriage is only between a man and a woman. Um, and that's it. And that's how it works. There are no multiple wives in the Bible. That's not right. But God in his grace works even when things are messy. Uh, and so allowing something to happen isn't the same as condoning it. And God is so gracious, so sovereign, that even when things don't quite go according to his plan, he still uses those people for his greater purposes. And Jacob and his family are evidence of that. It's important to say that, just in case some of you are thinking you could have more than one wife or husband. Um, I'm sure some of you don't want to, um, but just in case you were thinking about it, don't, don't do it. Anyway, so where are we? So we've got this unusual uh, situation. That, that, so he has his favorite son, and it gives Jacob, it gives Joseph even, um, a special robe in verse 3. We read, he makes for him an ornament, ornamented robe for him. And, uh, and this road simply set him out as better and different and more favoured than his other brothers. It's almost a robe of royalty. They would have had their robes, but they would have been probably brown and dirty. But his was nice and shiny. Um, he's only 17 years old, and it gets actually worse than that because we discover that Joseph is a bit of a telltale. No one likes a grass, do they? Let's be honest. Um, but in verse 2, what do we read? Um, he brought his father a bad report about the brothers. So not only is he favourite son, he can't keep that shut. And he's forever saying, hey, Dad, guess what my brothers did? I grew up with an older brother and I was treated like that all the time. Um, although my brother would say the same thing. And if you're listening, Paul, I apologise. Um, but that sets the scene. Those two things set the scene. That's where the problem of Jacob's family really starts. The division in verse 4 is quite clear. It says, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. I wonder if you've ever known someone that you feel so strongly about that when they walk into the room, you can barely speak, you just spit. It's the, because you're so angry with them. That's how his brothers felt towards Joseph. Um, and because of that hate, this situation is going to explode. In just a few verses, which we won't, won't read, um, they want to kill him so much that they decide, let's kill him, and let's just chuck his body somewhere. Who cares? Only one brother stands up for this um, boy that no one can stand. Reuben is the only one that says, let's not kill him. That's not a good idea. Let's sell him into slavery, um, which probably seen the lesser of two evils, although I'm not sure that's a, a good enough reason for doing it. But they rip up his coat, they dip it in animal's blood, they take it back to the dad, and he gets sold into slavery. And can you imagine what it must have been like for Joseph? One minute you're top of the world, you've got everything. The next thing you know, those closest to you are shoving you down a hole and selling you to some foreign traders that happen to be walking past and if you're thinking to yourself, what a terrible thing that happened then, you need to realise that that happens today, every single day. Did you know, in 2015, they estimated that 35.8 million people were trapped in modern-day slavery? Modern-day slavery. That's um, people working in countries like Saudi Arabia for next to nothing and other parts of the world. And that's also the sex slave trade and human trafficking. 35.8 million people go through what Joseph went through with his brothers. Some of them are sold by their family 
by people in their communities who they respect. Some of them are sold a dream that they'll get to Europe or America and they discover they're being shipped off somewhere else. 35.8 million people. And I wonder what the living God who loves every single one of them looks down and thinks of us who are free and how we relate to those who are trapped. Did you know some of those people, and this is upsetting but I don't care, some of those people are chained to beds and forced to have sex with 50 people a day and can do nothing about it. Some of that happens in Hertfordshire. Some of it maybe even happens in Sorbridgeworth because they're so good at hiding it. Stop the Traffic is an organisation that you may want to subscribe to and support. I wonder, is there a Reuben here this morning? Is there a Reuben here in this congregation? One that will stand up and say, no, that's too many. One is too many. 35.8 million is too many and make a difference. So we'll come back to the story because we, we have to. Um, there's a couple of really important lessons from chapter 37 of Genesis that we've just read. This story of Joseph and his brothers. And the first one is about the danger of favoritism. Uh, favoritism really is a cancer of most relationships, isn't it? When you have favourites, really your relationships are going to fall apart regardless of what you do. It's a terrible thing to have a favourite, but all too easy to do, isn't it? And we all show favouritism. Every single one of us here this morning has a favourite, whether you think you do or not. It may be that workmate that you naturally go and sit next to at lunch because he or she is your favourite. It may be uh, that client that you work with who gets just that little bit of extra time from you when you work on their case or their particular work, um, whatever it is that you're doing for them, because they're more my cup of tea. I like them. But the ones that get on my nerves, they get less of my time. That's favoritism. Maybe there's a family member that you favor over others. And when you're younger, let's face it, you'll have a favorite nan or granddad. And there's always ones on the other side you don't really want to see. Um, so, you know, it normally comes down to chocolate and, and money. My nan and granddad would always uh, give me stuff. Um, so, obviously, I love them uh, quite a lot. My nan would always say to my granddad, Sid, give him some money. And he'd go, oh, what? And he'd go and fiddle around for a pound. But um, bless him. I don't think he minded. Um, maybe um, it, with, even within families, you know, you've got two children or even three. And although you wouldn't say, that's my favourite, you treat them a bit different because you can't help but slightly more fond of them um, or maybe you've got four or five children but the Bible speaks very clearly that favoritism is a terrible thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 um, verse 10 to 17 Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he calls them out about favoritism and I'll just read these verses to you there's only a few but that's okay it says I appeal to you brothers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree with one another so there may be no divisions among you, so that you may be perfectly united in thought and mind. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Caiaphas, Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And then he stops there and he explains who he baptized and when, etc. But he attacks this idea of favoritism. What was happening in the church of Corinth is they all had a favorite leader, a favorite speaker. I love Apollos. I love the way he speaks. He's brilliant. He's so funny. Paul, boring. Rubbish. Goes on for far too long, too deep. 
Others will say, oh, I love Paul, he's very deep, he's not very funny, and that's my cup of tea, but, you know, Cephas um, over there is kind of he's boring, he's too quiet, too quiet. I like someone with a bit of presence. And they had favourites, and what it was doing was tearing that church into sections. And, this church, and the Bible speaks out about favourites. If you have favourites, there are three reasons why you shouldn't show favouritism this morning, and why Jacob shouldn't have shown it to his son Joseph. And the first reason is that favoritism elevates people to a position they shouldn't be in. In verse 1, sorry, Joseph was 17 years old and he didn't deserve that coat. He'd done nothing for it. That coat, if it was going to go anywhere, should have gone to the firstborn son. And we'll see in a minute because he lacked maturity to wear that coat and have that position. When you have a favourite, what happens is for a time they can do no wrong. They're the best person on the planet. They're the one that you want to listen to and work with because they're the most like you, perhaps. And the problem with having that and putting someone on a pedestal is that three things will happen. The first is that they, at some point, will disappoint you, but not disappoint you, disappoint you so badly that you will probably never look up to them again. The second thing putting someone on a pedestal will do is that as you look up to them, by logic, you will look down on everybody else. And the third thing is that you will blindly accept every single thing they say because they are your favourite and they can't possibly be wrong. Somebody once came into this church a long time ago, none of you will remember, and they actually came up to me on a Sunday morning and they said, oh, I'm so pleased we're here. I said, it's good, it's me too. We have been to every church in Bishop Stortford and most churches in Harlow and they're all rubbish. Okay? And what's more, you are the only one who teaches the Bible correctly. At that point, just in case you're wondering, did I get a big head? I thought, oh my word, are you kidding? Are you kidding me? And in my mind, I thought to myself, I'll give you one month, two tops. Guess how long they stayed? One month. Because... We, me, <laughs> disappointed them very quickly because you cannot elevate people that high and say such ridiculous things as that. Favoritism is bad. The first reason is it elevates people to where they shouldn't be. The reason favoritism is bad is it demotes people to a place they don't deserve to be. When you have a favorite, the message that you send to everybody else is that they're not as good as that person. They're not as important. They're not as uh, gifted, they're not as anything as this particular person that you go on about and you love and you follow. And the third reason it's so bad is it breeds inequality. In James chapter 2, again, another long passage, but we are at church, and if you can't read the Bible at church for a long time, what on earth are we doing, hey? So um, James chapter 2, verse 1 to 13, quite long, but talks about favoritism within the church, but you can apply it anywhere you like. He writes, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, here, a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? 
but you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are, you, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. And he says, just in verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful for mercy triumphs over judgment. James has absolutely no time for favoritism. He calls it an evil. He calls it a sin. And I encourage us this morning, if we've been showing favoritism, to actually repent, actually ask God's forgiveness because it is a cancer in our relationships we must have the courage to treat all people with the same value and the same fondness in Jude chapter 1 verse um, hang on, verse 16 uh, Jude says this in no uncertain terms he says this sorry I know you've read it behind me but I'm just taking my time to find it so you've got time to read it a few times um, these men are grumblers and fault finders they follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. In other words, he talks about favoritism and they, they seek the favor by boasting. And favoritism is a sin on par with those other, other things. And so back to that story, I've got a little bit of sympathy uh, with Jacob. Perhaps you have, having heard a bit of his background about the wife he really loved and the son that he had to wait so long for from her. Maybe there's a little bit of sympathy for Jacob this morning. But the thing is, um, without the sovereignty of God in this particular family, it would have been ruined and it would have been absolutely done in. Because when you don't feel like you're the favorite, you live with the effect of it for many, many years. I could tell you a story um, of a woman who went to be with her mum when she died, when she was on her deathbed, when she was slipping out of life into death. And as she was with her mum nursing her for the last few final moments before her mum passed away, her mum said, where's my son? Is he coming? Now, rather than think, well, I don't know, and try and find him, the woman, the sister, felt so often that she was the second favourite that it ruined the whole thing. He's always been the blue-eyed boy. He's always been the favourite. You imagine thinking that in that particular moment, but that's what favouritism does. It is easy in the short term, but in the long term, it destroys everything. And some of you here this morning are still living with the pain of feeling that you are second to your parents. In fact, I want to pray for you if that is you, because you're not second, you're not, you're not worse, you're not last. God loves you, and you're first in his view, like everybody else. I want to pray for you now, in fact, if that is you. Father God, I want to pray for any here this morning, that Lord, who have felt underappreciated by their parents particularly, or those that have cared for them, but Lord, maybe they've had a brother or a sister that always had the pats on the back, has always been seen as, as the favourite, the best one, the better one. And Lord, they've always felt that maybe they're not loved, not truly loved or liked in the way they think they, well, they ought to have been. Father, I pray for them, that you would remind them that, Lord, they are so precious, so valuable in your sight that you gave your son to be nailed to a cross. And if they were the only person on this planet, you still would have done it. Such is your love for the lost. 
Father God, remind them, Lord, of their true value, made in the image of God, loved enough for Christ to die in their place. And Lord, release them, heal them from the hurt of feeling second favourite. In Jesus' name, amen. So it takes courage um, to not show favouritism. It takes boldness to not show favouritism. And a lot of people aren't up for the job either. It means you've got to be humble when you meet people. It means you've got to forgive people. It means you've got to look at people's gifts um, rather than their character traits that rub you up the wrong way. Because let's be honest, that's a, a, a pitfall of life, isn't it? People get on your nerves just by being who they are rather than what they actually do sometimes. And sometimes you've got to look past that and treat them the way they deserve to be treated by their gifts and their abilities. Let me ask another question. Are you in a position to hire or fire anybody this morning? Maybe not in a, a paid position, maybe a voluntary position. Or do you have the power to bring someone on board or push them off? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you always pick the right person for the job? Do you always pick the person that deserves it? Or do you pick the person that unconsciously you like the most or is most like you? I challenge you if you're in business or in any form of leadership, to have the integrity and the courage to allow people to come on board who are good at a job, even if their mere presence gets up your nose. It's called courage, and it's called integrity, and it's hard work. But God calls us to be different. And so we just carry on. Um, into this pressure cooker, um, when it can't get any worse, Joseph then decides to start opening his mouth. Um, in verses 5 to 7 and 9 to 10, he tells his brothers and his parents he had two dreams. Two dreams where basically um, he's in the middle and they're all bowing down to him. And in verses uh, 5, 8, 10, and 11, we see the effect of uh, telling his family these dreams. He says, so Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. And in verse 8, we read, His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. And in verse 10 and 11, he told his father. His father rebuked him. What is this dream you've had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous. Right there is what favoritism does. But into that mix comes a boy who can't keep that shut. And the second thing I want to just really quickly say this morning is there's a real lesson here about the need to control our tongue and to not be naive. The danger of a loose tongue and naivety is quite important to think about this morning. I can't work out if Joseph is arrogant when he tells his brothers these two dreams or he's just stupid. Um, I can't work out if he's arrogant or he's just naive. He just thinks, well, I'll tell them because it was a really good dream and they'll really be interested. But of course they're not. I can't work out quite what it is. These dreams are clearly a personal revelation. And I won't read it, but if you were to read James chapter 3, 1 to 12, when you get in, you will see what the tongue can do if you don't control it. He lacks wisdom, perhaps, at best, and he's naive at best. And I, I just want to say, as I finish, that we must not be lazy in the way we speak. Uh, we must be people who think before we speak and consider the impact of every word we say again it's hard work and it takes courage and it's not easy but ask yourself this if God recorded every word that came out of your mouth and mine and put it into a form of a book would it be a bestseller would it be a good read or would people go oh keep that book away from me are our words words that build up or are they judgmental are they words that are seasoned with salt as it says in Colossians for preserving and flavoring life 
Or are they just words that fly out of our mouth with absolutely no quality control? I'm sure you've met people that just speak and they don't seem to think about the train wreck behind them of every word they say. J. John said this famously, you must always speak the truth, but you don't need to speak every truth. You must always speak the truth, but you needn't speak every truth. In other words, tell the truth, but don't talk all the time. You have to tell people everything that's going on all the time. And perhaps you've met people that say, I say it like it is. If you've met people that say, I say it like it is, just just shoot from the hip. Say it like it is. I don't care. Wallop. I'll bring the truth out, and if it upsets, it upsets. But it's the truth, I'll just straight down the line. You've met people that do that? Um, They may phrase it differently. And uh, whenever I hear that phrase, I just tell it like it is. I always think, remind me not to ask your opinion about anything because I know that you're going to say it like it is and not worry about how I might be feeling <laughs> or what might have happened or what might be going on and you won't care about whether you're going to be gentle in how you tell it like it is it's certainly easier to tell it like it is but I'm not sure it's biblical in John chapter 8 as Jesus is presented with a woman caught in adultery they say does she deserve to be stoned should we kill her call it like, like the law says what does Jesus do? no takes a minute he draws on the ground He thinks before he speaks. Isn't that a lesson for us all? If Jesus had to think before he spoke, so did we. So do we. So two things went wrong that robbed Joseph as his coat and his position as favourite son. That made this son a slave. It was his dad who got it so badly wrong and his mouth that ran away with him. So this week, think about who gets your favour. Think about who gets your extra 10 minutes here and there. Think about what comes out of our mouths. And is it really godly? Is it really necessary to say that particular truth at that particular time? We want to honour God in everything we do. Let's pray.